0: Christian Humanist Podcast, and guest on Sundry Other Things. I'm recording from Houston, Texas. With me are two gentlemen who need no introduction, but are going to get one anyway. Michael Farmer uh, from Christian Humanist Podcast, Profiles, Before They Were Live, etc. Recording from Woodstock, Georgia. How are you, sir?
1: I'm good, David. How are you?
0: Pretty decent. Um, it's You know, weather's good, teaching summer classes And trying to stay on top of Prep for fall, so Good times Good times Also with us is Jordan Poss Who has been on Gosh, you've been on all sorts of stuff But uh, the one that I listen to most With Jordan is Ancient Asides on, uh, On City of Man But you've also been on Sectarian Review and Lordy all over the place, Jordan, and you are recording from Fountain Inn, South Carolina, which sounds like a wonderful place.
2: It is. It reminds me a lot of home, but flatter.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
2: A lot more humid, too.
0: Oh, well, we can. I'm sure we can all talk about humidity. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is Series 1 of Core Curriculum, uh, in which we are working through... The Iliad by well at least traditionally attributed to Homer and uh, we are in we're in the home stretch uh, this is episode 9 and so we're going to be talking through books 18 19 and 20 uh, just a little brief setup in the the few books before this uh, the the Achaeans have just been you know getting it in the neck and uh, the stand-up guy, best friend of Achilles, uh, Patroclus, has finally goaded Achilles into some halfway action, at least getting his permission to impersonate him to spur uh, the Achaeans on to, well, not love and good works, but, you know, spurring them on at any rate. Uh, but Patroclus is bit off more than he could chew, and namely uh, Hector, who has killed him but good and there's been a fight over his body and then at the beginning of book 18 the bad news has worked its way back so I guess we should pick up there with uh, I guess the the, the 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 second time that Achilles has a, a, a reason to cry in his tent
1: he's got more of a right to do it this time don't you think
0: <laughs> yeah I can see that um, I find it really interesting, though. He seems to anticipate the bad news. Well, he anticipates the bad news even before he gets it, and then what he fears—what he fears—comes upon him. And even uh, even the captive women uh, who are in his tent join him in his grief. Which I found that I found that pretty interesting. Do we see, I mean, while we're on this topic of grief, you say, Michael, that he's got a better reason to be grieving this time, but do you feel Do you feel that that grief coming from him is in any way different from at the beginning of the book?
1: You mean the, the manner in which he grieves?
0: Yeah, the manner or the, the sorts of uh, passions that he's manifesting, the ways that he talks about it.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I, I think uh, this time he blames himself. So this is line eighty-three. I'm using the Stanley Lombardo translation. Mother, Zeus may have done all this for me, but how can I rejoice? My friend is dead, Patroclus, my dearest friend of all. I loved him, and I killed him. So yeah. he. It, we talked about this in the very first episode of this of this program. That uh, at the beginning he's kind of a whiny little girl. You know, he literally goes and cries to mommy for help um but now now the the blame is on himself as much as it's on Hector this is not about his wounded pride this is about something deeper and more fundamental to who he is and because of that in in addition to being kind of self-implicating his grief is also mixed with uh real hopelessness uh, he says, uh, let's see, this is a few lines later, you will never again welcome me home since I no longer have the will to remain alive among men, not unless Hector loses his life on the point of my spear and pays for despoiling Manosius' son, who would be Patroclus. So, so he's, got, um, he's got this mixture of grief and self-incrimination and wrath and despair, and it's all mixed together. Um, it, it feels much more powerful than it does in book one. In in book one you get the sense that his wrath is kind of a button that he's pushed to turn off and on, and that he could he could just as easily uh bury the hatchet with Agamemnon as as indeed he does later in the later in the poem. Um but here it it's like his grief is uh unstoppable.
0: Yeah. One thing, maybe it's in my translation this i've I've actually switched translations if you're watching this or if you're listening to this in order, dear listeners, um we're not recording it in order, so it's might it's possible that uh, you might hear me later refer to a different translation and certainly have earlier done it. Now I'm reading Robert Fagles because um, it has line numbers, <laughs> but as I was reading this section, at least. Half of that lament that starts, uh, well, in line 91 of my translation, when he's talking to Thetis, at least half of that bit of lamentation is for the armor that he lost. Does that undercut uh, any of the, the, the feeling of loss for Patroclus, given that he's also really, really sad that his amazing armor is also gone? I, I, I'm just asking the question if this is uh, if this is an impression I'm just picking up from one translation or whether that carries through in what y'all read.
1: It, it it does seem to be part of it. Um, Lombardo says, And the armor Hector cut him down and took off his body. The heavy, splendid armor, beautiful to see that the gods gave to Peleus as a gift on the day they put you to bed with a mortal. So it's not just his armor. It's that somehow losing the armor disgraces his parents as well. Another thing to to blame himself for, for letting uh, Patroclus go out there when he wasn't worthy to wear the armor to begin with. And, and frankly, he wasn't worthy to fight Hector because nobody is except Achilles. So I don't, I don't think it's quite as callous as it might initially appear. Cause I think that armor is bound up in more than just being a suit of clothes. Uh, he, he borrowed, it's not even that he borrowed. This was a gift given to his parents, uh, for reasons that aren't really stated here, I think. Um, but he so he's he's kind of betrayed a number of things and not just uh, his relationship with patroclus
0: yeah thank you for putting in that light because i'd been seeing him as i lost my best friend and my bike (laughs) (laughs) you know but he's taught you're right he's talking to his mother and this this was you know this was something he was entrusted with yeah I, i i like your read better his anger that he he describes himself as putting away his former anger a bit after this, uh and he describes that former anger as uh the anger that drives the sanest man to flare an outrage bitter gall but sweeter than dripping streams of honey uh, what is 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 his anger now? It doesn't seem like it's that that sweet anger anymore,
2: huh? Uh, the The new anger is obviously a lot more intensely personal. Where I always got the feeling that there's some personal. I always got the feeling that between Achilles and Agamemnon, there's a lot of personal dislike, but their disagreement is primarily about protocol. Mm. Um, and so it's it's you know if if Agamemnon would just give Briseis back, then everything will be okay this this anger cannot be resolved without somebody dying um, and he's I, th- I think part of his anger too is as you've mentioned at himself because he's kind of that former anger which is not ultimately that significant has actually created the scenario that's actually killed someone dear to him so it's, yeah. it's almost like there's a his response to Agamemnon was created a basic disproportion that is now born bitter fruit, and that's making this that much more bitter. I don't know. That's at least part of the reason I feel like it kind of supersedes his rage at at, at Agamemnon. I don't know. Does that make any sense?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and so much of that older rage was about not being treated, him, Achilles, not being treated in the way that he thought he deserved, and him sitting it out in the tent uh, was all Variations on a theme of "they're gonna be sorry they didn't give me my due,"
2: take my toys and go home.
0: Yeah, which can be a kind of uh, s- rottenly sweet way for a bitter soul to console himself.
2: Yes. So well, I know. mean,
1: we, we all understand that, right? I mean, we've all we've all kind of nursed a grudge, and we know how pleasant that can be.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I, I love the idea that he's setting aside his anger, even, even in favor of a larger anger. It reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Homer joins essentially the Masons and, uh, and he ruins everything. So they're going to they're going to they've stripped him naked and they're going to make him climb to the top of a mountain, dragging this giant stone they call the Stone of Shame. And then uh, it it turns out he's got a birthmark that makes them their Messiah or something. And so they're they're celebrating him and he gets excited and they say, remove the stone of shame and attach the stone of triumph, which is twice as big. (laughs) So, yeah, Achilles is putting aside his wrath, but uh, the the wrath he's going to pick up is way bigger and more destructive. And it's self-destructive, right? Because he knows the prophecy has said that if he fights in this war, he's going to die. He's not going to come back home. Yeah. there is something big in it for him. His wrath is so big and his, his grief is so big that he's willing to die for it in addition to killing for it.
0: Yeah. I I don't know that this makes him a better person, but he's certainly a more sympathetic person than he was at the beginning.
1: Well, you can Im- imagine admiring him now at yeah. least. Yeah. I, I, I think... I, I don't know what the original audience would have made of his actions in book one. I think maybe the virtue system in that society was so different than ours that we just can't possibly understand it. But certainly for the modern reader in book one, he, he must be one of the least attractive heroes in all of literature.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, the stuff of the armor is the major problem of book 18, uh, because apparently nobody else's stuff will fit Achilles. (laughs) (laughs) How much bigger is he than all the rest of these guys? He says that the only shield that he can use is the one that Big Ajax uses, um, and Big Ajax is Big Ajax.
1: It reminds me a little bit, David, of the convention in the Greek tragedy a few centuries later. Which is that the, the main character, the great man protagonist of these plays, would wear platform shoes. So uh. he's literally a head and a half taller than everybody else on stage um, to, to suggest exactly this that um, bigness is greatness in a warrior culture, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. So he's got to get. Like, uh,
1: Brad, it's like the size of. Br- Brad Pitt's arms in that Troy movie are the size of tree trunks. <laughs> it's one thing they got right.
2: The only great thing about that movie? <laughs> Brad Pitt's arms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. So he's got to get new stuff. And, well, it's 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 got to be made to spec, and it's got to be the best there is. So mama goes shopping. Before we get to that part, which... For, for my money, is one of the coolest parts in the Iliad. I, I love the description of, of Hephaestus, the god of the forge, and his, his home and the way that he makes this uh, amazing new set of gear for Achilles. Uh, is there anything in the in-between space that uh, we shouldn't gloss over?
2: Achilles having a scream that can scatter an army is kind of amazing.
0: Oh yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah. They're still fighting over uh Patroclus' body.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, but he doesn't have any he didn't have any armor, so he's not gonna go out and fight, so he just sort of yells <laughs> 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 And everybody runs away.
1: Well I mean it's it's back to the bigness of Achilles. He he fights hard and he grieves hard. And he's a remarkable man in either way.
0: Yeah. I mean there's some creepiness in this section. I I and I don't know if it was just in my translation. Um Achilles uh this is roundabout line two fifty in mine, uh he loosed an enormous cry and off in the distance Pallas shrieked out too and drove unearthly panic through the Trojans. Um you know, their spirits quake, they all run away and they're killing themselves trying to run away. Uh, But I I found that creepy. Uh, His, he screams and Athena screams and they all just, uh, they all just make like lemmings and bolt. Lemmings with spears, which means, you know, stabbing other lemmings, I guess.
1: (laughs) And again, and they've, they've been routing the Greeks until very, very recently. Yeah. Like, they, they thought they'd won. They thought they were going to burn the ships and that was going to be it.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Hephaestus. Uh, Thaddeus has gone to. Uh, well, actually, kind of snuck behind the back of Zeus and, and the, the higher Olympians. Uh, she's snuck to Hephaestus' house where he has droids? Like, that's all I can envision here. He's got these cauldrons <laughs> on wheels that go and fetch things. Like, I just see R2. Which is cool.
1: All I can think of is the brooms from Fantasia, but I do host before they were live. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: good, too. Uh, which uh, my, uh, my King Arthur class watched Sword in the Stone a couple nights ago. So, yeah. That, that scene of animated animated kitchen tools is in my mind, too. Well, what do we want to say about uh, the Hephaestus scene? What's, what's interesting and worth noting here?
2: I think it's interesting that um, Hephaestus is primarily moved by gratitude to do this.
0: Mm, yeah, say more. It's
2: not, it's not exactly what I would have expected. You know, you're so used to seeing the gods negotiate and con each other. And then instead you get this kind of genuinely weepy, heartfelt, like, oh, sure, of course I can do this. Let me, you know, like setting aside his other projects to take care of this personal project for Thetis.
0: Because she'd intervened on his behalf before. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. In a, in a story that, you know, I checked the, I'm reading Fagel's as well. And his notes on this, it sounds like maybe some kind of unclear background story that we've lost part of. Um, possibly having to do with his birth or something, uh, but somehow she has helped him in the past, and th- that's going to translate into action to help a mortal, which is a—it kind of, seems like almost an inversion of the entire g- kind of Greek view of the world, where the mortals have to serve the gods. And in this case, you know, it's like a goddess is able to call in a favor for a mortal. It's just—I it, just find the whole relationship there interesting.
0: Yeah, though. So- Correct me if I'm wrong, because I wasn't in on that uh, first episode, but isn't that how Thetis gets Zeus to give victory, at least temporarily, to the Trojans anyway, um, calling in a favor with Zeus?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because yeah, it's funny, because Zeus is on the side of the Greeks, but he actually he actually helps the Trojans win, not to benefit the Trojans, but to benefit Achilles,
0: yeah. yeah, this guy is—is—is is, is Thetis the 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 first literary helicopter mom? Is that what's going on here?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I've always thought it was funny, and I—I I, I think it's—I I can't remember what book It's—it's it's one I'm not talking about, but at one point Achilles makes fun of Patroclus for being like a little boy crying to his mommy, <laughs> which I, I mean. Yeah achilles's first instinct is literally to go cry to his mommy i don't I, I don't know i don't know if we're supposed to laugh at that or not
0: i mean homer knows about irony you know it I, I i rather suspect i rather suspect that at least at least the the poet i know in the odyssey has got a strong sense of irony and i keep kind of rolling that back into here maybe i shouldn't but still it's a temptation.
2: But again, in, the, in those other instances, it's kind of a negotiated calling in a favor thing. I, the, the, what, what, what stands out to me as distinct about Hephaestus is the gratitude. which yeah. uh, There's not a lot of gratitude in the Iliad.
0: it, it crops up in some interesting spots.
2: Yeah. Let's it's t- made, uh, made distinctive by how exceptional it is. Yeah.
0: Let's say something about this shield before we, uh, before we turn to the next bit he the armor that Hephaestus fashions is uh, a shield, a helmet, uh, a breastplate, some uh, greaves or or uh, armor for the lower legs. but what's what is uh, accounts for pages of description is a lavishly decorated shield, and it's one of the great early uh, early examples of, of poetic uh, ekphrasis, if I'm pronouncing that right, of uh, a poetic description of visual art, um, and this is one that uh, Virgil actually pulls on in in the Aeneid. He has a, a he, he he pulls this scene straight out of the Iliad and has uh, Venus come and entice Vulcan you know, the Hephaestus of the Iliad, into making armor for her kid, uh, Aeneas. And he also has a fancy shield with lots of pictures on it. So what what's worth observing about the pictures on this shield? They seem various and random. Do we pick any patterns out here?
2: Um, it, it actually took me a little while to figure some of this out. I, I actually had to look up and see an illustrator's image of what this might actually look like because i had a hard time i you know the individual vignettes on the shield i I could figure out but seeing them all in relation to each other it's kind of of turns his shield into a model of the entire universe because you know the gods gods and the stars and everything are at the center and then surrounding ocean is kind of at the shield rim and you get images from images of divinity and then small town life and sacrifices and farming and anything you can possibly imagine kind of figured at some place on this shield. And uh, until I saw some some people who had sort of fancifully reconstructed what this might look like, I thought there's no way you could get all of that on a shield. <laughs> it, it reminded me a little bit of Keats's Grecian urn. Well, yeah. There's no urn big enough to have all of these pictures on it, uh, especially in the almost animated detail you're describing. But uh, it's, you know, Hepha- Hephaestus's a god he can he can do this kind of thing um so it's it, it's like it's like uh achilles is kind of carrying the whole world into battle with him in this case so there's there's something some something significant i don't i don't want to use the word existential because that sounds too too highfalutin but something of universal significance to what he's about to do
0: i like that there's such an animation in each of these vignettes. Mm-hmm. They're so they're so active. I have a hard time imagining that the shield doesn't isn't, isn't kind of a moving picture. Right. Like like Maui's tattoos or something.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You wonder who had time to look at it closely enough to
2: see what's on it. Especially since microscopes yeah. didn't exist.
0: <laughs> She's like you get this image of Achilles like holding the shield right in front of his nose like I see a little man or a little silhouette of a man. So, book 19. Here comes the armor and then and then let's take a break to talk about how sorry Agamemnon is. Achilles resents most of what happens in this chapter uh as an egregious delay in wreaking his wrath on Hector and Trojans generally. Uh, are do you get the sense that the poet may also want us to feel that this is that this is some some foot dragging on the part of the storyteller that that maybe we also should be uh, should be feeling that uh, the Greeks just need to get their act together and get back on the field there's so much talking in it
1: well and it it does seem to kind of go in circles right there's a lot of uh okay we're we're performing this kind of ritualized uh repentance and forgiveness but it it seems to happen more than once even in this book uh and i, I believe it happens a couple times in other books as well uh so i mean it does it does feel a little bit like a delay but on the other hand hmm well, I was—I was, I was going to say it has to be made right before Achilles can go out there, but Achilles himself explicitly says it doesn't. Right? He wants—he wants to get right. out there while he's still angry, and he's afraid that if he forgives Agamemnon, he won't be angry enough. It's almost like some <laughs> of his some of his earlier rage has been transferred into um, into his current emotional state.
2: Yes, it's interesting reversal for him too, because I—I I wouldn't have thought of this unless. Except, you know, I used that word protocol earlier to describe his earlier anger. Uh, weirdly, it is now Agamemnon who's strictly observing protocols and Achilles who just wants to completely disregard the rules and just hard charge into the battle.
1: That's because Achilles mm-hmm. doesn't care about rules. He cares about rules when they benefit him. Right, yeah. He, he's neutral, he's not good. Or, uh, I'm sorry, he's neutral, he's not lawful.
0: Mm. Right. Yeah, his his conscience is is oriented towards himself. True. I find it fascinating that just Achilles, our godlike hero, who just shouted the enemies into retreat, and now has gotten this amazing you know ancient Greek Iron Man suit <laughs> descending from heaven. Uh, he puts it on his eyes are glowing with rage, and all the rest of it and then uh and then Agamemnon says, "Time out we gotta we gotta talk through this whole thing between you and me, man. It's <laughs> like like the action scene is just about to go down when someone steps in and says, "Hey, there's this unresolved side plot." <laughs> <laughs> Which we have to handle. Um, but he's. Uh, Agamemnon says a lot of stuff about Zeus and fate and this goddess that he calls ruin, uh, which I found pretty interesting. Um, how. How much is this him just trying to save his own reputation by shifting everything back on the gods and how much of this is some, some, some genuine fatalism
2: that we should take seriously it feels like probably at least a little bit of both um, Agamemnon Agamemnon uh, is probably as self-serving if not more so than Achilles himself uh, that doesn't mean he's not going to accidentally say something true occasionally, right? Um, prob- probably he's eagerly jumping at this because the truth happens to coincide with what he wants to what he wants to express to Achilles. Yeah,
1: it is definitely the central question about this book to me. How much do we believe him? He says specifically that Zeus made him go crazy uh, when he when he took Briseis from Achilles, and you could kind of believe it either way, right? Because on, on the one hand, Agamemnon is pretty much presented as a tool throughout <laughs> uh, throughout the Iliad. But on the other hand, lots and lots of people do lots and lots of emotional things because Zeus makes them do it. But usually when that happens, we're told it happens. Right. And we don't actually see it happen with Agamemnon, although, of course, we don't actually see the dividing up of the spoils either. That, t- that takes place before Book 1. So... Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's up in the air, and maybe the point is Achilles no longer cares mm-hmm. whether Agamemnon was to blame or not. He no longer cares whether that was unfair because he's encountered this greater injustice, as he sees it. The it's now up to him to go right.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, we saw. It. I didn't. Uh... I didn't note it, but it's in in the previous book. Hector gives a rah-rah speech to the Trojans when they're all running away from Achilles, you know, primal scream, and says, you know, we need to stay and fight Achilles. And then it says immediately after this, and all the Trojans uh, responded well to his speech because Athena had made them stupid. To, <laughs> w- w- words to that effect. Uh, So, I mean, like, in the immediate context of of the previous book, we see, you know, evidence of the gods directly tinkering with people's ability to make rational, sensible, self-preservation decisions. Um, So, I mean, it's not as if Agamemnon doesn't live in a world in which that happens. But uh, I think you're, uh, you're on... You you're right Michael to point out that we don't actually see that smoking gun in his case. So maybe that's why one of the reasons why our suspicion lingers on him.
1: Mm-hmm. But I mean maybe that maybe the purpose of the book is to remind us that it really doesn't matter that that, that conflict while it jump started the poem is not the central meaningful conflict of the of the poem. So we the poem begins with wrath. It begins it with Achilles's wrath against Agamemnon and now in book 19 book 20 it transfers the their wrath becomes directed at somebody else and it's much bigger than it was. I was going to say it ends with wrath but of course it doesn't and our um our listeners can listen to the the episode 11 of this program to see how it ends.
0: One of the things that clusters in this book and it's been a, it's been in other books but there's there's a cluster of references right here in the middle of this. Odysseus says we can't go into battle because the men are hungry. And he actually has two pretty decently long speeches about the importance of actually having a good meal before you go fighting. But Achilles also talks about the slaughter and the blood being his food that he craves. Uh, And meanwhile, we have uh, earlier in the book... Achilles being worried that Patroclus is going to rot and in order to prevent that Thetis instills the body of Patroclus with the food of the gods, the nectar and the ambrosia in order to preserve him um, what is uh, what is, do y'all, did y'all pick up on this food imagery or make anything of it?
1: no, I love that connection yeah <laughs> what but, do you make of it? david
0: i I don't know what to make yet except that uh you know that m- maybe there's a difference uh yeah you know, we're we're seeing the ways in which Achilles is more than human because his hungers are different yeah um you know the food of the gods satisfies a different kind of need than the food, than the food of man does. Uh, but Achilles doesn't want the food of the gods or the food of man. he wants a third food I mean it's 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 as if there's now uh, a different alignment. It makes me think of, oh gosh, I can't remember which book earlier on when Athena and Apollo take the form of vultures uh, and and just sort of uh, uh, sit in a tree like carrion birds watching duels that the the gods with their ambrosia that suggests you know the bliss of Olympus, and then humans' dependency on you know grain and meat and whatever uh, is a sign of their frailty. But then there's this other desire, which seems to be a godlike desire, a dark godlike desire for for blood and death. Uh, and now Achilles has seemed to cross over that boundary become like that
2: yeah everything human is so minor to him now like interpersonal conflict doesn't matter getting his stuff back doesn't matter even you know maslow's hierarchy like base level stuff uh even that he can he can ignore until he has kind of quenched his rage
0: yeah i heard a lecture on the iliad uh a long time ago that shaped the way I think ever since, uh, and, the the lecturer, it was John Mark Reynolds. Uh, Hmm. he, he talked about Achilles as half man and half God. And he has the divine, the immensity of divine passions, but the frailty of the human vessel. Hmm. And, uh, He didn't pursue that through that note through all of the iliad as a as kind of a close reading but that that thought comes back to me a lot of times uh, and it and it helps me uh, at least to pay attention to the ways that achilles feels as being different or differently proportioned to that of other humans in the book
1: and yet, uh, Sheila Murnahan, who wrote the wrote the introduction to the, the Lombardo edition, she she talks about how, yeah, so he's, he's torn between his human and divine natures throughout the poem. But when he decides to go to fight, he does so choosing his human nature. Hmm. Because he may fight like a god, but he's going to die like a human being. And there's no way yeah. around that because of this prophecy that he knows of. I mean... He's one of the very few characters in the poem who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's going to die in this war if he fights in it. Everybody else, you know, they're probably going to die because so many people die in it. But they have some glimmer of hope. But when he enters the battle, it's with all the despair of a human being who knows he has to die. He becomes human somehow in this um, in this decision. And so it, it's interesting to me that here in Book 19, as you say, he's kind of ignoring the things that make him human and, and trying to become this divine rage monster instead. Hmm. Right? Like, because yeah. yeah. in saying, Oh, I don't need to eat. I'm going to go and My wrath is just going to allow me to kill all the Trojans in the world. Um, th- there's something inhuman about that, even though implicitly in choosing to go out there, he's choosing, if not humanity, at least mortality.
0: Hmm. Yeah. But I don't
1: know, I just, I just came up with that all at once, so I'm not sure it actually makes much sense.
0: Well, you made me think as you were talking, Michael, thinking about Agamemnon and the ways that he's blaming his choices on, you know, the gods doing brain hacks. <laughs> uh, maybe my memory is just fuzzy, maybe Achilles has said some similar language, but he's, you know, you point out, he's the one who knows That if he chooses A, he gets one thing. If he chooses B, he gets another thing. And is he the only man in the Iliad with with an eyes-open choice?
1: He is certainly... I don't know if he's the only one, because that that is difficult to prove. But he is certainly the one whose choice is most visible to us. Yeah. Even when... (laughs) Agamemnon and Odysseus and Diomedes even when they leave the battlefield which I can't remember what book that is um, even when they leave the battlefield they do so unwillingly uh, uh, right before Odysseus leaves when he's wounded he makes this statement about how nobody no no real man leaves the battlefield even if they're wounded and then he gets wounded and leaves it's like he didn't have a choice in the matter even about that yeah. um, but you're right I mean Achilles has one and that does again set him apart from everybody else and it's a
2: lifelong knowledge too or at least at least it, he has known it for years and years um ever since before the events of the poem like like uh i was on the episode i don't i don't remember which books exactly it covers when we talk about the incident in which diomedes has the mist cleared before his eyes and he can actually see the gods interacting yeah uh, people on the battlefield that's that's a kind of knowledge that very few mortals ever get access to but it's temporary and, uh, and it doesn't inv- really even reveal anything about the future to Diomedes, just kind of like what's actually going, like he can actually take the back off the watch and see the gears ticking for a minute, uh, where Achilles knows from the get-go how this has to end, and he's just kind of biding his time. Yeah. Uh,
0: even his Even his horse is yep. telling him
2: <laughs>
0: to, to back down, and he won't.
2: I love that moment. Don't blame us.
0: Do you read it in like a like a Mr. Ed voice in your head?
2: <laughs> I do now. No, Achilles!
1: I think a lot of people don't realize that Mr. Ed is a very broad adaptation of the Iliad.
0: Hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. Green
1: Acres is actually a, uh, an adaptation of the Odyssey.
0: Huh. <laughs> Farm living is the life for, uh, for Odysseus.
2: That's, that's the idea. Who would that make Mr. Haney?
0: <laughs> Nestor. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you guys react to the first real introduction of Brzeis in this book? I mean, it seems as if she's, she, she disappeared early on when Agamemnon gets her and then she's she's just absent for books and books and books while Agamemnon you know says that he's never touched her swears he's and then she shows up and i get i did not expect the first things that she does yeah cuz she's seems Almost as broken up about the death of Patroclus as Achilles. That well, was... I
1: mean, I think I think Homer pretty, pretty heavily implies at least that there is a real emotional connection between Achilles and Briseis. He he says he loves her yeah. in yeah. that first book, and I you know I still don't really know what to think about it, but it does seem at the very least like she has Stockholm syndrome.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and Patroclus seems to be part of it.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. Patroclus, dearest joy of my heart, my harrowed broken heart, I left you alive that day, I left these shelters.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, and she describes how he, Patroclus, on the same day her husband and her brothers all die, he he's the one who takes her and assures her that she'll be given to achilles and that achilles will marry her. Mm. Right? Like that's as if that's consolation. Like I know your husband and your brother's just died, but hey, you know, I can I can hook you up with achilles. That'll 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 be good. That'll be your happy ending.
1: You can marry superman doesn't sound
0: so bad, does it? I guess not when you put it that way.
1: In a, in a society where women—I mean, we, we've talked about this over and over again—in this with this poem, where women are essentially just booty, you know, no fun no intended. <laughs> uh, women, women are, are just there to be handed around from man to man. Like that actually might not be the worst fate in the world. Yeah. You
2: give her a kind of security she doesn't have as booty. Yeah.
0: It reminds me of a. Uh, there's a one of the french Arthurian romances uh it's called avain uh and in it one of arthur's knights uh fights a man in a tournament or fight uh actually he he fights a man in a joust um out in the wilderness not in a tournament um uh fatally wounds him chases him back home uh the guy dies and arthur's knight and falls in love with the widow of the man that he'd killed, but has to conceal himself, because all of her people are up in arms to, to end him. But one of the widow's maidservants comes to her and says, you really need to find the guy who killed your husband and marry him. <laughs> because you're." your realm is in peril as long as it doesn't have a champion, and you need to have a champion who is demonstrably as good or better than the one that you just lost. And the man who beat him is that guy. So that, that factor of defense and being, uh, if you are if you must think of yourself as a possession, at least thinking of yourself as the possession of someone who is strong and can keep you secure, and value you, um, maybe that is the best it can get.
2: Because at least Achilles does not, he, he, anyway, does not view her as interchangeable with any other slave woman.
1: Which, which, uh, Agamemnon absolutely does. He, he right. compares her, compares her to his wife and says, I like her just as much.
2: Oof. We know how that turns out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and the interchangeability of women is, is, is precisely how, uh, how Agamemnon gets her in the first place, um, you know. He has to it,
1: give Chryseis back, so he gets right. Briseis instead. Even though their names sound similar.
0: Yeah, I mean they're you know practically the same person, apparently in his mind, but not in to the Ach- whole. Oh, sorry, but not to Achilles. Right.
2: I was just going to say, and the whole war, of course, started with some goddesses <laughs> giving away a woman to Paris. Right. Right for flattering them.
0: <laughs> I love that story, the judgment of Paris, like the goddesses and all their, you know, bliss and infinite self-confidence just immediately trying to bribe the judge of the beauty contest. <laughs> just like right away, not yeah. even waiting.
1: <laughs> it doesn't seem fair to make other goddesses compete with the goddess of love in a beauty contest though.
0: Yeah. Cheat. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, really? What? What? But she cheats, she, she cheats too.
0: She uh, cheats
2: too. Yeah. Are there any allusions anywhere in the Iliad to that contest?
1: I haven't noticed any.
2: Because one of the things that interests me about the whole poem is kind of seeing what is and is not in it. Like the the whole Achilles heel thing. Um, I mean, Achilles bothers with armor as if. Any part of him is potentially vulnerable. Um, he knows he's going to die in the war, but exactly how I don't think is ever made clear. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to me to see where where those other famous stories may may kind of get alluded to, and and where you know Homer is clearly the foundation for something that was just elaborated upon later. The expanded yeah. universe.
0: Yeah, I mean in the expanded universe and I can't remember what the source of this is, uh, the setting of that golden apple being rolled in there that says, To the Hottest Goddess, (laughs) um, that whole scenario is the wedding of uh, uh, Thetis and Peleus.
1: Hmm. Oh, really? I didn't know Yeah,
0: in in some of the other, uh, in, in at least one of the one of the versions of the myth that that's supposed to be setting that up and so and why is Thetis marrying Peleus well in one of the versions of the stories it's because somebody and some in some accounts Prometheus has prophesied that Thetis will uh, bear a son who will be stronger than his father and both Poseidon and Zeus had made plays for Thetis But as soon as they hear that prophecy, they're going, yeah, let's make sure that she pairs off with a nice, safe mortal. (laughs) Mm. So the stronger-than-dad son is not going to displace us. You know, I mean, Zeus has good reasons to fear the ambition of a stronger-than-dad son, given his, you know, own biography.
2: For real. Uh, I was just looking. There is a very short, like two-line allusion to the Judgment of Paris in Book 24.
0: Interesting. So, uh, if if all of those things are connected, uh, which which I find that fascinating, the the way oh, yeah. the the way the the expanded mythology universe kind of filled in these cracks and also consolidated events, you can draw a line straight from Prometheus Bound. <laughs> right to why Achilles happens in the first place, and to why the Trojan War started, and all of those things are bound up, end up bound up together in the ways that the Greeks filled out the the stories.
1: Of course, the stories are different every time they get told, too. So, oh
0: yeah, well, and they're different here too. I mean, Hephaestus in the last book was married to a grace named Charis, and. I, You know, every other source that I know, including the Odyssey, has him married to Aphrodite or Venus.
2: Right. I tell my students that uh, this mythology would drive modern-day internet nerds crazy with the uh, complete disregard of continuity. <laughs> well, we another, got
1: another point in its favor.
2: Yes, but it's also a good indication of cultural priorities. Like, you know, we want the neat, neat, tidy, squared-away you know, embroidery in which every stitch is stitched directly to something else and there's no mess-ups, and uh, that was clearly not what the Greeks were interested in.
0: Yep. Uh, too many cooks in the mythology kitchen, I guess it was. <laughs> you were saying earlier, Jordan, that uh, when Diomedes gets uh, the, you know, his the mist is taken away, and uh, you, you, you compared it to the taking the back off the watch and watching the gears. Uh, book 20... Is just all about the gears, <laughs> at least That's the beginning.
1: Right. Yeah, you get the the true stakes of this conflict turn out not to be really anything having to do with anybody on Earth, but it's it's who's God, whose familiar God is more powerful. Yeah, it reminds me. I I don't know if this is true, but in my youth group, it was a story. It was something we talked about, which is that. um when Mike Tyson was going to fight Evander Holyfield, Holyfield supposedly said, "It's my God versus his." Huh. I don't know if that's true or not. Holyfield's a Christian, and Mike Tyson, I think, is a is a Muslim. Huh. But it's a very it's a very Iliad attitude, right?
2: Absolutely. Because
1: uh, very. Was, Her- Hera says. Let's one of us at least stand by Achilles and give him strength, keep up his morale, so he'll know that the best of the gods love him. And the others are worthless as wind. All those divinities who <laughs> have protected <laughs> Troy in this war.
0: All those worthless gods like, you know, Ares this. and Apollo and <laughs> Artemis and yeah. Aphrodite and, well, this one river.
1: Well, he takes care of the river.
0: Yeah, the river's hilarious. But that's that's next week your listeners
2: i like the north wind mating with a bunch of was it horses <laughs> that, I, I, re- rereading that i was like well, i don't remember that that feels like a fever dream
0: what was that about
2: <laughs> well this whole this whole book
1: um book 20 feels like a fever dream i mean there's mm-hmm. it's it's strange
2: and it, it and uh I, th- I think some of the hemming and hawing with agamemnon you know, we, we talked about kind of thematically what it does with uh, Achilles shedding a lot of normal mortal concerns. Um, I think narratively, one of the things that 19 and 20 do is give a little space to mounting tension before Achilles just goes on his slaughtering spree. Yeah. Um, Homer wrote or composed, you know, 2,700 years ago, but he's very, very, very attentive to the structure of a of a story with, you know, rising and falling action
1: right he just he just rises the action in a way that is foreign to us yes
0: yeah in 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 a lot of ways that that slow build from the death of of uh patroclus and then uh getting the 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 forging of the armor it's building up it's building up it's building up it's building up and then the next one there's this this Intervention in my head. It started. It started to take the form of techno. Um, you know, you've got that that kind of interlude, and then in 20, heaven and earth and sea all scream simultaneously, and the beat drops.
2: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got the Tron soundstra- soundtrack in my head. I,
0: I that feels appropriate at this point, <laughs> and then you know both sides just start. You know, kicking butt, taking names. If they had been left to sort this out on their own, which they are not, because Zeus is up on the mountain doing stuff, Um, who do you think would have won if just, just left to themselves?
1: Between the Greeks and the Trojans?
0: Well, and the gods on their sides. Oh. I mean, this, this is a pretty cool you know, uh, uh, a pretty cool Olympian matchup.
1: Well, I think the point may be that they're pretty evenly matched. I mean, I I certainly get that sense with the Greeks and the Trojans. Generally, if you have a long scene with the Greeks, pretty soon you're going to get a very similar scene on the Trojan side. So it, it, it does seem like kind of a bizarro world going on here where these, these two equal opponents clash into each other and the only reason one side is able to beat the other is that the gods are involved but then even on the god level they're pretty evenly matched and you only win uh, one side only wins because the ultimate god gets involved the head of the gods and there's
2: yes. fate overmastering all of that right
0: and Zeus's is- Weird, on again, off again, instrumentality slash opposition to fate. Um, sometimes he doesn't want it. He doesn't want it to happen to him, but he seems to claim to be the one who knows and and brings it about for everyone else, which is uh, which is fascinating.
1: That mm-hmm. seems realistic. To me. <laughs> Don't you think?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: fate's fate's a little like justice. It's something you want to happen to somebody else.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh. What do you think about our boy Aeneas? I just got done teaching the Aeneid, and and I I, I love the the his his introduction here because he's he's picking up on precisely what uh, you just said, Michael. The the kind of The purpose of showing a point-by-point correspondence between the opposing sides. And what's going to break this, you know, point-by-point even match. You know, when he's comparing, um, you know, this is after line 230 in the Fagels. Achilles calls him out, and Aeneas says... You're Peleus's. Uh, they say you are Peleus' son, that fine and flawless man, and your mother, Thetis, sleek haired child of the sea, and I am Aeneas, and I boast Anchises' blood, the proud Anchises, but my mother is Aphrodite. So, yeah, you have a famous dad and a goddess mom, but. I have a famous dad and a goddess mom. <laughs> you know, I claim royal blood, you claim royal blood, so now, you know. No more bragging in this way like schoolboys. Let's do this. Except they aren't equals.
1: No. Cut no, they're up. not. <laughs> Aeneas is very good. I mean, Aeneas is Diomedes level good, right? Because he lifts the rock that two men today couldn't riff, uh, lift, which I think it said of Diomedes earlier in the in the poem. And Aeneas yeah. is super virtuous and super brave and goes up against it. And the only reason he survives at all is that Poseidon convinces him to be a coward.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's like he picks him up and throws him into the next county.
2: (laughs) I I wish I could describe my mental image of that.
0: (laughs) Does does it sound like the the yahoo hoo hooey from the Goofy shorts?
1: (laughs) The Goofy Holler.
0: Yes. (laughs) Aeneas. Oh, gosh, he, well, he does it to, he does it, they do it for Aeneas, and then they do it, oh, gosh, who else did they do it for? Um, was it Hector? Yeah, yeah, they, 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 they whisk away Hector to prevent Achilles from hitting him in this book. Uh, I just think that's so funny. Achilles is now finally in action, and... The gods are just like Lucy with the football. <laughs> you know, he takes his swing and then the guy's gone. You know, and Achilles is left shouting the, the Greek version of, come on.
1: <laughs> oh, he'll get the one he wants.
0: Yeah. Well, any last points uh, to to round out uh, this, this run of books? Uh, I think this is, a, this is a fun set with some, some really cool images and uh, some stuff worth paying attention to, but we're just about at an hour right now.
1: I, I would like to point out something Hector says. This is line 445 or so in the Lombardo. Don't think you can scare me off with words, son of Peleus, as if I were a child. I can trade insults with the best of them. I know you're really good. A lot better than me. But it is up to the gods to decide whether I, a lesser man, will rob you of life with my spear. It's been proven to have an edge before. So that seems to suggest that even from Hector's perspective, the two sides are not evenly matched. Our hero uh, is better, or our hero is not as good as their hero from the Trojan perspective. That that Hector knows this and yet feels it's his duty to do the best he can to try to, uh, to take down Achilles, which means... In his way, he might know that he's doomed just as much as uh, Achilles does, or close to as much as Achilles does.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Coming from a very different place, though.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, and he has his moment where he has to decide to fight or not, right? When he's when he's at the wall with Andromache and whatever the son's name is. Timmy.
2: <laughs> short, but, short for, S, is it Estianax? Yeah. S- yeah. Hector Jr.
0: Mm, a little Hector <laughs> uh, well.
2: Yeah, the uh the the similarities between Hector and Achilles keep piling up but coming again from completely different directions, which is makes their final confrontation that much more powerful.
0: Which is in the next episode, which you should be listening for, dear listener. Are we good? Is that a wrap? I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, as I said, be listening uh, f- next. Uh, our next episode, episode 10, uh, with books 20, uh, 21 and 22. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for, for choosing to, to take this journey through the Iliad with us thus far. And we're so close to the end, so close that you can taste it. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks. Core Curriculum is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Bye, all.